Well, the kids are dismissed for kids' praise, and uh, <clears throat> thanks for being here today again. Um, special welcome to McPherson's Finest back here, the firefighters, some, some of our troops here. Thanks for being here. I feel very protected today. That's good. Well, as I mentioned, today uh, is kind of a I don't want to skip over texts because they're difficult. You know, we want to grapple with them and wrestle with them. And so this is one of those days. Um, in case, if it's your first day, it's one of the challenging texts. But, uh, but it's a privilege to do so as well. You know, when I was in uh, college, I remember having a conversation with a girl who told me that she felt led and called to pursue ministry, to go to seminary, to become a pastor, and so I thought it my duty to sit her down and set her straight. Based on my upbringing, based on what I believe the Bible taught, seemed very clear to me, the complementarian view. Um, and so I wanted to uh, let her know the truth to save her a lot of pain. I said, you know what, uh, to my friend, I said, well, I didn't even know her that well. I said, you know, men and women were indeed created by God as equals. But... Um, they were created to complement one another. They have distinct roles. Um, for example, Eve was created as Adam's helper. The creation design fits male leadership. Men did not come from women, but a woman came from man. Eve came from Adam. And furthermore, it gets specific in 1 Timothy 2, I told her, Eve was the one deceived, not Adam. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, um, there were male priests who God chose, not females. And then there were 12 disciples who were men, not females, patterned after the 12 sons of Jacob in the Old Testament. An overseer in the church is a husband of but, but one wife. Uh, deacons are to be men worthy of respect. In 1 Timothy 2, women cannot teach and have authority over men. I can remember her look of bewilderment and almost despair. In fact, I saw tears in her eyes after the conversation, I felt kind of bad, but then at the same time, I felt kind of justified because I wanted her to know the truth of God's word. That is, until the next morning, when I went to my Bible class, taught by Greek scholar Dr. Gilbert Bilzekian, who's written books and commentaries, and who is a pastor at a megachurch in Chicago suburb called Willow Creek, a guy who's highly respected and evangelical. And he, he told me a different view other than the complementarian view in that class. It was perfect timing. I heard the egalitarian view of Scripture as to what he believed to be the truth. Egalitarian versus complementarian. Keep in mind, Wheaton College is an evangelical conservative Bible school who, whose graduates included Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, Billy Graham, Elizabeth Elliot, among many other evangelical list, uh, leaders. After listening to Dr. Bilzekian, I was convicted. I was humbled. I felt that I needed to reach out to this young girl that I had lectured the night before to apologize. But the collateral damage had already been done in some respects. I made her feel lousy. What is this egalitarian view that I learned first at Wheaton College? Egalitarian means 
that spiritual leaders and roles in churches are not based on gender, but they're based on spiritual giftings. The Apostle Paul never distinguishes between male and female when he, when he lines up all the spiritual gifts in three, three or four separate texts in the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians 4, God gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. No mention of male or female. The covenant denomination um, began to adopt this in the early 1970s where they decided they would allow women to come and ser- uh, to seminary and serve as pastors in their denomination. It wasn't based on the political climate of their day that they made this decision. Rather, it, it, like the women's liberation movement going on, but it was based on this serious study of Scripture from their Greek and Hebrew scholars. And so in the 1970s, women began to attend seminary and such in the covenant denomination. You might be thinking, 70s is not that long ago, really, in the scope of the you know, creation of the world, 1970s. So let's then go back to the very beginning in Genesis. God created Adam and Eve, and he created them to co-reign together on the earth. The words used are uh, to subdue or have dominion over the earth. And they were to do so side by side, patterned after the Holy Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are co-equal and co-eternal. Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us, speaking of the Trinity, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the birds and the animals, etc. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. Why did he create them? In verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So that's what they're created to do in the very beginning. Genesis 1, part of 2, to co-reign, subdue, have dominion over the earth together, patterned after the Holy Trinity. But then we know in chapter 3, the fall happened. Adam and Eve, they ate of the tree, and sin entered the world. And we read in Genesis 3 of the consequences. We read that men by the sweat of their brow will have to work and all this. And then and we read of the women in verse 16. God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband. Uh, will, will be contrary to your husband, and he will rule over you. The beginning of gender wars happened as a result of the fall. And notice, as a result of sin entering the world, he will rule over you. Not from the beginning, but because of sin. You think, 1970s isn't that long ago compared to the very beginning, right? And then in 300 AD, we get a picture of what the early church thought. 350 AD, a guy named Chrysostom, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople, he recognized this in this quote, in Eve's original relation with Adam before the fall, woman was not called into a state of submissiveness. Only after the fall did that become pertinent. Interesting. The, the Bible is God's story. 
of God continually redeeming that which was lost in the garden at the fall to make it right. It began slowly and it just continues to grow incrementally until finally when Jesus returns, when it's all perfected and we experience the new heaven and new earth patterned after the original earth that God gave us, sinless. But then you might be thinking, but then I read 1 Timothy 2. And the complementarian view seems pretty straightforward. So if you have your Bibles or phone apps, or you can uh, look up here too, I want to read part of, uh, starting in verse 11. It says, Paul writes, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. So we read that, and we think, that seems pretty straightforward. Case closed, let's close in prayer. Well, as with all study of Scripture, the first thing you learn in, in Bible 101 classes is you ask, is this text prescriptive or is it descriptive? Is it descriptive of a cultural situation specific to a need happening there or an issue? Or is it prescriptive? Is it universal for all people for all time? Well, then skip back two verses to verse 8. Therefore, I want men everywhere, Paul says, to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. How many of you were praying this morning like this, men? You, my friends, were disobedient to Scripture. Let's look at women. Verse 9. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women. Women, you should refrain from wearing any kind of gold, silver, pearls, or expensive clothes, and do not even think about getting one of those fancy perms. You must forevermore shop at Walmart <laughs> if you want to be obedient to Scripture. Well, it's clear to me that these passages that precede the verses I read about women remaining silent, these passages, we would all say they're descriptive of the culture of their days. I don't know why, but they're descriptive. Well, I do know why, because I read commentaries. If a woman were to dress or wear her hair in particular ways in the culture of Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, then it would have been assumed that she would have been associated with this pagan ritual temple cult of Artemis or to the goddess Diana. Artemis, they were the same. So when Paul instructed women to avoid certain hairstyles and articles of clothing and jewelry, he's not offering a prescriptive command for all high school girls that they must dress down like plain Janes for their proms or homecoming dances. You can't wear jewelry, girls. Paul, in his pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, they are letters written to very specific issues in a church. They're not doctrinal statements for the church, you know, for, for doctrine. Although they do include doctrine, they are written to very specific issues. For example, if I were to write a note of encouragement to a friend whose heart was just smashed 
because his fiance broke up with him just two weeks before their wedding, then I would say to the guy, hey, hang in there, dude. I'd write a note. Don't pursue another relationship for a while. Give yourself time to grieve, maybe two years or so. But be encouraged, buddy, because remember, I got married when I was 28 years old, and that was an ideal age for me. Love, John. Now, if someone were to discover my letter written 100 years from now and consider it some sort of inspirational message, then would they conclude that men should not marry until they're 25 years old? That's the ideal age. And give yourself two years if you've gone through at least two years. No, you wouldn't. You would understand this is a very specific letter written to a specific friend in his situation. It wouldn't be prescriptive for all people for all times. However, the principles wouldn't be lost. Take time to grieve well. Don't make major decisions. Wait on the Lord's timing. So Paul's commands in 1 Timothy 2 would be descriptive, I believe. Recall, in this Gentile city, the temple of Artemis employed women who were leaders in this temple cult, and they were priests, and there were temple prostitutes in there, and they were teachers, and they were accustomed to speaking out and directing and leading the entire, uh, everything that happened within that temple, dedicated to none less than a female goddess who was the head of their religion. And so when these females became Christians, then they didn't all of a sudden shed all of their habits. They continued to lead and speak, but yet now in a Christian way, and yet they were immature. And so they would not have had the history of studying scriptures or even reading. They couldn't even read many of them in that culture because they were women and they weren't allowed to. And until they came to Christ. And then they were invited to study. Well, Second Timothy says they were influenced by these false teachers. And they began to teach the teachings that they received from the false teachings. So Paul writes in Second Timothy, For among them, these false teachers, are those who creep into households. And they capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. They were uneducated. They weren't steeped in Judaism as many of the Jewish believers were living in Ephesus at the time. So some of these women began to spread these false teachings that they'd received. Like the time when I was invited to a storefront church near my hometown in, in New York. Not New York City, but Jamestown, New York, and about half hour away there was this other storefront church and I loved it and so I invited a bunch of high school kids when I was college age to come with me and we loaded up a van and we went week after week on like a Friday night and we worshiped there and, and the leaders in the storefront church taught about all these sign gifts that we read about in scripture like the gift of speaking in tongues the gift of prophecy the gift of healing the gift of interpreting knowledge the gift of you know, things like that. And I'd never seen any of that in my traditional church that I was raised in, which was covenant. Furthermore, this, these leaders would be highly critical and were highly critical of the traditional churches like the one I was raised in. And so the more I went, the more critical I became of my home church of upbringing and my parents who still attended there. 
And I began to teach all these new unbalanced teachings that I was receiving uh, to people from traditional churches, and I became very critical and arrogant. That is until I witnessed the implosion of this church. But prior to that, I remember my dad setting me down and, and telling me, hey, John, you got to be careful here. Uh, you got to be careful what you're teaching and what you're um, believing because not all of it is what you might think. My dad had wisdom. He had the gift of discernment. Well, I kind of shut him out. And I said, Dad, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're just raised in a boring traditional church. Well, this church eventually imploded the storefront church, because of its spiritual arrogance. And God's word says God will humble the proud. He's not going to compete with people who are arrogant and proud like this. So he humbled the proud. Because recently converted women were propagating these false teachings that they received from male false teachers, combined with the confidence that from their former lives of leading in the temple of Artemis, the ginormous structure in Ephesus, Paul had to instruct these women in Ephesus to assume quiet and submissive attitudes in their learning rather than take on the posture of trying to teach. In verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, if we take this at face value, then thanks, guys. Thanks for coming and for responding. Um. If you were to take this at face value, then we would look like an Amish church or a Holderman Mennonite church or a Quaker church where women would have to be very quiet and silent. But Paul says a woman should learn. We don't understand this to be prescriptive, but descriptive. A woman should learn. For thousands of years, women weren't permitted to learn as Jewish men were, or as men were. But Jesus changed all of that when he came on the scene and began his ministry. He rocked the world by the way he treated women. It's revolutionary. It makes this look like kindergarten play right now, what we're talking about. For example, when he dealt with Mary and Martha, went into their home, the sisters of Lazarus, and Martha was busy in the kitchen, you know the story. And Mary was sitting there listening to Jesus teach with the other disciples. And Martha became really critical of Mary sitting on the floor because she wasn't busy in the kitchen, right? Wrong. She wasn't critical for that reason. She was embarrassed because her sister was sitting at the feet of a rabbi, which would have been considered blasphemous in that culture. Women don't do this. Only men can sit at the feet of the rabbi and learn. And what did Jesus say? Martha, Martha, you're worried about so much. Your sister Mary has chosen that which is best. That would have been, pow, that would have been revolutionary in those days. And then Jesus had other women who followed along with the 12 disciples in the entourage, women who served in the ministry as well. So we read, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. The word quietness here does not mean silence. They're different words. Quietness is an attitude that, that Paul uses for both men and women in verse 1. When he, write, he wrote, first of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions be made for all people that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives. He's talking to men and women here. Same word, quiet. 
In other words, women should learn with the same attitude of peace and quietness, respect and full submission to their teachers, their rabbis, those who they're learning for the first time from. They should be expected to learn with the same attitude even as their male counterparts would sitting at the feet of the rabbi with quiet, submissive spirits. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now that's a bugaboo type of verse, isn't it? This verse is the only place, by the way, where women are prohibited from teaching in Scripture. This is the only place in Scripture where women are allegedly prohibited from teaching. First, let's unpack this verse. It says, I do not permit. Sounds like a command. But if you look in your Greek uh, lexicon, you would discover this is not a command. Paul's not using the tense, aorist tense, which would be in command form, like we would interpret it in English. But it's in the present tense which means I am not permitting at this time for this occasion. That's what it means. In other words, it's a temporary instruction. I'm not permitting a woman to teach or assume authority. Second, because of the influence of the false teachers, Paul instructed women to withhold from teaching until they were able to first learn and become grounded in the truth. By the way, women were in we're encouraged to learn, right? Um, did I skip over that in my notes here? Um, a woman should learn in quietness. Learn. Women weren't invited to learn. All right, up until that time. So if women were permanently to remain quiet and never teach and always just have to submit to the authority of men, then Paul would be guilty of contradicting himself in other letters that he wrote to churches. Even earlier in this letter, for example, um, Phoebe was considered a deaconess. She was a leader, Romans 16, 1 through 2. Priscilla, he considered his co-worker in Romans 16, 3. Now, if you read about Priscilla in Ephesus, you'll notice that Luke highlights her gifts for teaching and equipping alongside her husband, Aquila, as they poured into the life of Apollos, who became a church leader. She, Priscilla, being the prominent teacher of the two, because Paul always refers to Priscilla first in the pair, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila, like four or five different times in his letters. And then we read of Mary, Tryphosa, Persis, who are hard workers along with Paul, Andreas and Junia, highly respected among the apostles, Judea and Syntyche, uh, co-workers with Paul in Philippians 4. We read of Tabitha at Joppa. There was a disciple named Tabitha, we're told by Luke. A woman, a disciple woman. Furthermore, women were named as prophets, And the definition of a prophet is one who spoke on behalf of God under divine inspiration to groups of people, the church, the entire church, not just the women's Bible study, but the entire church, prophets. And there were, Philip had four daughters who were acknowledged as prophets in Acts 21. Women prophesied with their heads covered, which would have been culturally appropriate. 
when a woman taught. But guess what? Were women silent in Corinth? Paul says, no, but when they prophesy, when they speak on behalf of God, when they teach on behalf of God, heads covered. Acts 2, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, even on my servants, both men and women, women servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. They will speak on behalf of God. Doesn't sound like they're silent in the church, does it? Furthermore, God chose women, a woman who we met at the well, to be the first evangelist to the entire area of Samaria, the Samaritan woman who came to know Christ through her testimony. Furthermore, God raised up four women or more to be the first eyewitnesses and evangelists of the most important message known to Christendom, Christianity, I should say, and that is his resurrection. Jesus is alive. Women who would not be given the chance to be, give testimony in the court of law during those days, God said, I'm going to choose four women to be my witnesses, to be, give my testimony. Does this mean, oh, and then finally, Lois and Eunice taught Timothy, we read in 2 Timothy, uh, and grew him in his sincere faith before he departed with Paul. Some might say, well, yeah, but Lois, the grandmother, and the mother, Eunice, you know, they, they taught Timothy when he was a mere child. And it's appropriate for women to teach children in the church. And I'm thinking, okay, that makes sense. Give the women the most important task of teaching the most impressionable minds in the church who will grow up into adulthood to shape them for life. But then when young boys reach 17 or 18 years old, then women are disqualified and not equipped to teach any longer. Well, try telling that to my wife when my adult kids come home and they ask for wisdom. Um, my wife and I both will teach our children, and we don't think we're in disobedience to Scripture. I think probably Lois and Eunice continue to have great influence on young Timothy's life even into his young adulthood before he departed to be with Paul on the second missionary journey. Verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. This word assume authority, again, the word for authority is authentane in Greek. It's only used here in Scripture, only one time, it's called the hapax legomena, never used anywhere else. Yet we build a whole theology based on this one verse. Women can't have authority over men. Well, if you look at extra-biblical writings and you find that word authentane, you'll discover that that type of authority is an authority that is used in an unhealthy way. It's aggressive, abusive, and domineering, and violent type of authority. It's inappropriate inappropriate for any leader, whether male or female, to practice with this type of authority. And apparently there were these women leaders from the cult coming over, and they were kind of th trying to throw around their authority, which was inappropriate. Other commentators say maybe that's a little bit too strong. They would suggest that the emphasis should be on unearned authority. That fits better the text. They're not granted authority, but they grab at authority. Unlike Priscilla, who was granted authority by the church and recognized by the entire church and the Apostle Paul as being a leader and teacher. 
in Ephesus, in the very place where Timothy was. Priscilla was granted, but these other women were grabbing at this unearned authority, like the time when I was in college, and um, we were supposed to break up into this group in class, and and the the five of us or six of us got together, and we're to do this class project for the next couple of weeks outside of class, we're to develop this deal and put together a paper as well and a, a project, and then after two weeks, come back to our leadership class, present it, show and tell type of thing, present the paper. But what happened was there was an underclassman guy who wanted to assume authority of our small group from the get-go. He grabbed at it, and he, he labeled himself as a self-proclaimed leader of the group. It was a disaster from the start. It was an assumed authority that was never granted to him. And if it was left undealt with, it would have probably affected our grade for that term. And so we had to deal with this. This is the type of authority that Paul was dealing with, with these uh, new convert women coming into the church. And for the sake of the well-being of the church, Paul had to put a stop to that. So Paul stopped it and would not allow this kind of harmful authority from misled women. But this prohibition was not prescriptive for all women for all time. Otherwise, Priscilla and all these other lists of women in Scripture would not be mentioned by Paul as godly leaders, mentors, and teachers. But then you think, okay, I can buy into that, but what about verse 13, Pastor John? Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's a creation order. And Adam was not the one who was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Well, that sounds pretty convincing, that woman was to blame. Unless you read the rest of the Bible and you discover that Adam was to blame for the sin everywhere else. It was the sin of Adam. It was the first Adam that sinned, and God had to raise up the second Adam, Jesus, to save and reverse the curse. The sin of Adam, Adamic sin. But why Eve here? Well, because Paul is dealing with a specific situation with women, and he said, this, this example of Eve, she was a sinner too. She participated in the first sin, and, and that, would, that would drive my point home to these women who are assuming authority or using domineering authority. And so he used her as an example. Instead, they, um, um, they should temporarily defer these women to the expertise of those who were thoroughly instructed at that time, namely the men of Ephesus. They were the ones who were more qualified to teach at this time. And until women learn from them and grow in the church as young believers, then they should defer and submit to these teachers. And we come to the final verse, and I'm done. Verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with propriety. What in the world does that mean? Gregory of Nyssa writes, just as women was the first one, just as woman was the first one in the revolt against God, so she became the first witness of the resurrection that she might retrieve for her, by faith the overthrow caused by her disobedience. In other words, he's saying women were the first to eyewitness the resurrection and, and they were the first ones God used because of the sin of Eve re- restore women this way through the testimony and in the same way through childbearing they would be responsible for the coming of the Messiah. Thus they would be saved through their gift of childbearing to give birth to their Savior one day.
So, now in the words of the Paul Harvey, you know the rest of the story, right? You may not buy into this hermeneutic that I was first taught at my Christian college and then what our denomination teaches and our church adheres to. You might not adhere to this. I, I believe it. It makes sense to me. I've known a lot of women who have been phenomenal pastors and, and teachers and preachers. I've had some in seminary and college, and they were life-changing for me. And so I either had to conclude at that time, either they are demon-influenced because they're in direct disobedience to Scripture, um, or they're being used of God, and they're inspired of God to do what they're doing. And, and that's what I concluded because it just made logical sense to me um, but what difference does it make if we, whatever we believe? Um, well, here's the difference it makes. If God were to give you a conversation like I had with this young woman when I was in college, and she says, I feel called to go in the ministry, and if you dissuade her from pursuing her call because you're standing on God's truth, then you might be working directly in opposition to God like I believe I was. You might crush the spirit of a young woman. And I would say to any young woman in here, if you feel called to the ministry, you're going to have my blessing here because I believe it's scriptural. I believe it's a kingdom issue. I believe that when Jesus came, all these hierarchies from the fall evaporated or, or not evaporated. He, he began to reverse that. You know, Now in Christ, there's no longer Jews reigning over Gentiles like we see in the Old Testament times and even in, in the Middle East today. There's no longer... Uh, um, masters who are ruling over slaves like we've seen forever and there's no longer men who are ruling over women those are the result of the fall in Christ there's no longer slave or free Jew or Gentile male or female this is what Jesus came to do it's a kingdom issue to restore that which was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve co-reigned together comes from a high view of scripture. Let's pray. And before I pray, I just want to say, it wasn't my intention to convince you to think otherwise or to change your opinion. It's not my intention. I don't care. You know, the Holy Spirit will do what he does. Um, It was my intention to share with you why we as a denomination, why I as a pastor believe like I do, comes from a high view of scripture. Not because we want to be culturally relevant or, you know, progressive. It has nothing to do with that. It's what we believe to be the truth. And so you can grapple with it on your own, and you're welcome here, whatever your conviction is. Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus, I thank you for uh, your truth. Even though it's a hard scripture to teach, Lord, um, we thank you for it. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that um, you've given us your Holy Spirit to help grapple with these things and make sense for ourselves. And where there's disagreement, Lord, we pray for mutual respect in this room, in our church, and we will respect each other for our convictions, Lord, and still maintain, um, maintain a, a love for one another, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.